And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show all about Marvel Comics' man without fear, superhero by night, lawyer by day, Daredevil, as well as his enemies and allies. A Two True Freaks presentation, I am your host J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This week we pick up with Daredevil Father number two, but first I just have a random thought to put in here. Do you ever flip through an old comic and see the prizes or cash ads, usually Olympic or something like that? The more I've learned about those, the scarier they become, because the whole setup is that you would be selling greeting cards and stationery to your friends and family. Bear in mind, they're marketing this to children. They would send kids these greeting card orders and they would, of course, go around. Hey, help me. Help me buy this and I'll get a bike siren. You know what? I never got a bike siren. The allure of this is sort of the the, the same thing with Girl Scout cookies. I mean, they're delicious cookies, but they're very overpriced. But the selling point is there's these adorable little girls sitting outside in front of the Walmart and the Target. They're like, please, mister, buy my cookies. Help me go to camp. And you just have a hard time saying no. But here's the thing, I always wonder now, is it more like the mafia, once you're in, you don't get back out? Surely out there, there was some kid who just wanted to sell enough to get that Debbie Gibson cassette tape. Once he got that cassette tape, decided, yeah, I'm done with this. Did they send people to his door? I mean, I've watched The Sopranos. I know a few things about this kind of operation. I mean, once you're in, you're in. You're family. You're a made man. Somewhere there's some kid that got so much prizes and cash that he became a little mogul. Who knows where that kid went? But that kid that just wanted the Debbie Gibson cassette, suddenly he just disappears one day. No idea where he went. And look, the Debbie Gibson cassette is gone too. What about that other kid that got the bike siren, who wasn't me, of course? Or the AM, FM clock radio. Suddenly they stop and then they disappear. Or things happen, they fall down a set of stairs with big quotation marks or run into a doorknob. And all of this run right in front of our faces with ads in each and every monthly comic with Captain Olympic to try to bring the kids in. It's scary. It is scary psychology. I was always really disappointed that my my parents wouldn't let me participate. Now I'm kind of thankful. And yes, I never got the bike siren because it also had a megaphone if you remember that that thing was pretty cool but at the same time i never had anybody named Vinny come to my door wondering why i haven't sold my quota of greeting cards there's a potential cautionary tale there and i i did i just don't know if it's ever going to come to light exactly how shady this was on the other hand there may be nothing there and i'm just making a mountain out of a molehill maybe nobody named Vinny came to anybody's door nobody ran into a doorknob or tried to leave the family and found that once they were out they got pulled back in they added that set of the Jets, one of those great families from the 80s. Great family band. Look them up on Spotify. Maybe it was a completely innocent way for a company to promote their products through familial relations and use children to learn really responsible ideas about business and selling and relationships. But the more I look at it, the more I'm like, this is a future Dateline story waiting to happen. Really, it is. Anyway, what does that have to do with this week's comic book? Not a darn thing, but just random thoughts that I like to put here in the preamble because, you know, I like to be 
Yes. But for those of you who bet against episode 94 here coming a week after episode 93, I hope I beat your spread. And for those of you that won money betting on me, hey, I'm happy to help. I don't know what the Vegas odds were. I wasn't really paying attention because I was busy making this show. But you know, haters gonna hate and all that. I am back a week later, and I'm here to cover Daredevil Father almost said Daredevil Yellow. I'm here to cover Daredevil Father number two out of six. Now, this was originally slated for five issues, but between the first and second issue, things changed, and probably for a reason. That reason is probably timing. So why don't I play a podcast promo, and then I will be back to talk about Daredevil Father number two. Star Wars, give me those stars. Nothing but Star Wars, don't let that man. Star Wars, those great Star Wars, talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast! Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... that's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me the... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Got a secret, can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save. Better lock it in your pocket, taking this one to the grave. If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said. Cause two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Smile like you've been told a secret Now you're telling lies Cause you have sworn to keep it But no one keeps a secret No one keeps a secret Why when we do our darkest deeds Do we tell They burn and our brains Become a living hell Cause everybody tells That's where this one you say Better lock it in your pocket Taking this one to the grave If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said Cause two can keep a secret if one of them is dead 
And we return. Now, if you remember last time, Daredevil was basically moping around, introspectively thinking about his legacy, his father. Has he done more as Daredevil than a lawyer? We also saw that Daredevil had pretty much rid Hell's Kitchen of all crime. Anything that tried to make its way in got kicked out pretty darn quickly and apparently pretty brutally. Daredevil also took on the case of Maggie Farrell, who got cancer from New Jersey Power and Light. If you remember, Maggie came from Hell's Kitchen, grew up in the same neighborhood as Matt, as well as her husband, Sean, who was really standoffish. But when Matt, kind of getting suspicious, asked Sean if they had met before, Sean denied it. Yet his heartbeat told Matt the dude was lying. We were also introduced to the hip-hop guru named Nero, the son of a slain city councilman who had gone into exile and returned. And then as soon as we saw that, we had mid-coitus murder about a killer that likes to take out people's eyes. That's going to become important here in Daredevil Father number 2. And this issue had an October 2005 cover date. If that seems odd to you, I will comment on that in just a few minutes. It came with a cover by Joe Cazada. We have Daredevil lunging at the reader with his billy club in hand, spewing its swing line all over the black background. Once again, we get this black background. Same motif. We had this shadowy Daredevil that's kind of a conglomeration of shapes in red on that black background. And here we have Daredevil with a crest-healthy smile. I mean, that is a nice set of chompers for somebody who gets punched regularly. And while I kind of sound like I'm criticizing this color scheme, it stays consistent. And we have Daredevil in this sort of urban legend mode, almost a dreamlike Daredevil. Now, what threw me off is that the Billy Club is in his holster and in his hand. It's in three sections, accomplishing absolutely nothing but stringing this stuff all over the place. And the look on Daredevil's face, it's like he had way too much cheese and he's really, really constant. And if you think I'm beating around the bush, let me just say what I'm meaning to say. I've kind of thrown some innuendo on the table. The Billy Club, it's positioned the way Daredevil is kind of leaning into it. It looks very masturbatory. I mean, if you think it's just me, I ran it by my wife to see if she thought so. And she's like, yeah, a little bit. I can see that. What really struck me, and this sounds a little bit pretentious, admittedly, but what really struck me, and maybe I've mentioned this before, but the Billy Club, yes, it's used to, to throw and to bounce off people's heads and to knock people in the face, but it's also kind of a lifeline. If we take that and apply it to the metaphor of the story where Daredevil's reflecting on his life and Jack's life and how one led to the other, one influenced the other, that lifeline and the way it just kind of spews out crazily all over the page kind of makes sense. Matt's life is in chaos, at least internally. And I say lifeline because yes, it's used to to beat people up, but at the same time, if Daredevil leaps off a building blindly, no pun intended, and he's got the pavement rushing up to meet him, all he has to do is swing that out, the thing catches, and saves him. A, that means this is a very elegant weapon, a very unique weapon that serves a lot of purpose. It's, it's very versatile. I mean, yes, it's been made more versatile in the past than it needed to be. I mean, we don't need a tape recorder in the thing, Matt. But at the same time, it's something he uses for various options. But I love the idea of, of the lifeline showing chaos on the cover. Maybe not the intention, but I could not escape it. After looking at the cover, after reading the issue, I went to bed and I kept thinking about that lifeline, kind of thinking about the, the dreamlike image of Jack, and it changed my perspective on the cover. Not the greatest cover, a little bit awkward, but at the same time, I like that the motif stays consistent because it does differentiate from the main book that was on shelves. But inside this cover is the second part of our series, entitled Heat Wave, written and penciled by Joe Cazada with inks by Danny Mickey, letter by Chris Eliopoulos with colors by Richard Eisenhoff, and this is heavily reprinted. You have a hardcover version, a trade paperback. It's on the Marvel app and Comixology. 
And don't forget, if you're going to buy Comixology, you could actually go through the Amazon Kindle store, which means you can use the Two True Freaks link on the website, which means you can buy your Amazon Kindle version, which converts over to Comixology. Use that link to help Two True Freaks keep the lights on, plus you get your comics. It's a win-win, costs you nothing extra. If you don't necessarily want to own the issue, it is available on Marvel Unlimited. And you say, what is the plot of this issue, Dave? Well, let me break that down for you now. New York is gripped in a heat wave, and there is a killer on the loose called Johnny Sockets who is removing his victim's eyes. Crime has been rampant, but not in Hell's Kitchen. It's migrated to other parts of the city, turning Manhattan to a compressed can of emotions. Nero watches the news, brooding as he does so before he is summoned by an assistant for another public outing. Meanwhile, in Hell's Kitchen, Matt Murdock wakes up restless. His head is full of thoughts, and to expunge them, he pulls on his red duds and hits the rooftops. On his patrol, he is haunted by images of Jack Murdock and the old man that he saved the day he lost his sight, his final moments of vision. This introspection is interrupted by a ruckus, and the man without fear discovers the aftermath of a new super team cleaning up the city, the Santarians. But neither this new team nor Daredevil are able to stop Johnny Sockets from striking again as he lures a woman from a bar into an alley for the kill. Johnny Sockets' latest kill is interrupted, and the eyewitness does not get a good look at him. Nero watches this report at his apartment, looking very invested in the story. A clue? Perhaps. Maggie Farrell is back at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch to talk to P.I. Jessica Jones, and she has a black eye, which she tells Matt to ignore. But Matt can't ignore it. Later, Sean and Maggie have a fight with Sean washing a knife. Yes, it's brought to our attention that the Farrells have cutlery. Clue? Perhaps. Sean leaves to clear his head, which Maggie takes as her husband heading out to see another woman, but Matt is following in disguise. Sean makes his way into the city, with Matt using the scent of his aftershave, Old Spice, with a hint of chemo in it, to track him from the rooftops, and then Matt is blasted from the sky. He plummets down into an alley at the feet of some strangely dressed individuals who claim they have conquered the devil. And that is where Daredevil Father Number 2 wraps, and where we begin to discuss the second chapter of this Daredevil tale. Alrighty, where to begin? Let's talk about the release date. You notice that the months between the issues, if you're paying attention, were quite noticeable. This issue actually hit stands on August 31st of 2005, versus issue number one released in April of 2004, exactly April 28th of 2004. 15 months! So there is a big, big gap between these issues, which reading in sequence like this for the show, I didn't notice, but I did kind of vaguely remember some complaints at the time. But hey, you know what? The other issues did come out, and you know what? I'm still waiting for Daredevil Target to wrap up. I'm pretty certain Kevin Smith doesn't know or care that this show exists, which is cool, but if he does, I would really love him to get back to work on the Target and wrap it up. Really want to see that series completed. Somewhere between issue number one and issue number two, it was decided that this series was not going to be five issues, but instead be six. Is that necessary? I honestly don't remember. I'm reading these for the episode, not reading ahead. So we'll find out as the series plays out for us. But time passes in the comic itself, as we see the heat wave that Matt was sensing really take hold, and it's been there for a while, so people are a little ticked off, as well as letting Johnny Sockets really, really rack up a few victims. There's a really interesting aspect that's proposed here at the beginning through this news report, where we're learning a little bit of exposition. Daredevil has cleaned up Hell's Kitchen, but crime has moved to other places, which tells me quite a few things. First, A... 
There seems to be a system here in place in the Marvel Universe where the justice system acts as a revolving door. Which kind of makes sense. You have Daredevil versus the burden of proof. For somebody to be held, for somebody to be charged and taken into the courtroom, there must be a burden of evidence. Daredevil must supply that because that's what law enforcement has to do. They have to show they had just cause to enter a place. They have to get warrants. They have to follow procedure, which Daredevil, as I mentioned last week, doesn't. No red tape for Daredevil. So, for example, Daredevil's swinging around. He sees a mugging. He sweeps in, stops the mugger. Does the victim press charges? Are there reports filed? Where's the evidence chain? What's brought to the courtroom? Daredevil's not filling out police reports. Though that would be great. You could get stationary for it. It would be fantastic. But he's not. So it comes down to the victim pressing charges. Well, if Daredevil's knocked somebody out in the alley, this person just wants to go home. They just want to get it over with. They're not thinking, hey, I need to press charges. Because Daredevil's not telling them that. He's just beating people up and moving on to the next. This also tells me, B, that crime is migratory. The area is off limits. Daredevil has battened down the hatches in Hell's Kitchen and and put the squeeze on it. Let's be honest, if you have a drug addict, is not going to stop being a drug addict because you busted his dealer. He's going to migrate. He's going to find another dealer. No, you're going to go to a completely different location, and that location can move. So crime migrates. It's almost like New York is a big biosphere. It's a network. Daredevil pushes people out of Hell's Kitchen. They go to Queens. They go to Midtown. I mean, really, when you think about it, Spider-Man's not going to notice some of this. Spider-Man's fighting Dr. Octopus. The Fantastic Four is trying to deal with Galactus invading. Nobody's going to find these small crimes. This is Daredevil's bread and butter, unless you get the Punisher in there, and that's a whole other mess. That tells me that Daredevil is curing the symptoms, but not the disease. It's kind of like killing an infection in your arm and it moves into your neck. The third thing this tells me, though, is that when crime migrates, it creates this vacuum of power in one place. As crime grows in an area, there are people who will rise up to meet it. Maybe superheroes, maybe regular people, but there will be an offset, a balancing of sorts. And that naturally sets up the Santarians, who we don't see till the very end of this issue. So I'm going to get deeper into this next time. But Santarians are named after Santeria, which is more than just a sublime song. Santeria is the worship of saints, is what it translates to. So what they're doing is taking back the streets. There's a need, and that's the reaction. You create heroes. Maybe you create new criminals because somebody sees the opportunity. So this sort of biosphere idea, the network idea, that New York is one big organism and the sickness will move from one place to another as different medications, we'll call them, aka superheroes or law enforcement, but as they take hold, that sickness just moves or it mutates. And like a organism, antibodies come in. New superheroes, new law enforcement, new procedures. And this kind of seems simplistic, but at the same time, it's kind of fascinating to see it play out here in the Marvel Universe, where Thor can fly over at any time. That this city that Matt loves really is an organism, and you kind of see it as a living thing. Yes, it's millions of people, but at the same time, it acts as one giant organism. And then we bring Nero back, and I was kind of excited. So far, he's just watched TV and brooded. I kind of want more from this. The sad thing is, I don't really get more from this issue. So far, he's been nothing more than a narrative device, and he's a character that I'm really interested in, but I'm starting to get impatient with my interest. So far, he's been used to move from the exposition of the TV into the story realm, and nothing more. I really, really want more from this character. But then we finally get to Matt, and Matt's waking up in his bed with this looming shadow of Daredevil. I wonder, 
if he feels guilty about resting. That if he takes the time to sleep, somebody gets shot, somebody overdoses, somebody gets burglarized. At the same time, he can hear all this because all the sounds of the city invade his brownstone. He knows what's happening out there. He cannot ignore it. Although there's actually a really good joke about the deprivation tank we saw in the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. Maybe he should get one. I see what you did there. And maybe that's not such a bad idea. And this scene kind of plays out in a way that kind of takes us back to where we started last issue with the introspection. Matt looks at his crucifix. It triggers a flashback. And he pictures Jack Murdoch drunk and asleep, slumped over in his easy chair, just saying the, muttering the, really the word Maggie. And I note that in the flashback, once again, we have the jaundice color, the sepia color, but the crucifix is red, the color of anger. I also wonder if it's maybe some kind of infection. With the crucifix, you also have the blood allegory. It's Christ bleeding on the cross and, and kind of the idea of sacrifice. The symbolism of giving your all for others. I'm going to follow this train of thought here. I'm probably reading too much into this, but I, I look at that crucifix and I still think about anger. I wonder if it's anger at Maggie, Daredevil's mother, who ran off to become a nun. So that crucifix is a symbolism of the religion that she left him for. She left. And I have to wonder if Matt kind of sees Jack's death as being on Maggie's shoulders a little. Hear me out on this logic here. Maggie leaves Jack with this kid to raise. And Jack is broken by this. He's hampered by the kid, he's broken by just Maggie leaving him and breaking his ever-loving heart. Jack never really recovers from that. He can never get his career back. He can never get his groove back. And everything he touches just turns to You know, it's just, he can never get it together. Matt's the only thing he can put any real effort in that gets any results. But these aren't things that really edify Jack. That's not what Jack's legacy is to be for him. That's not what he wants. He wants to be a championship boxer. So I've talked about Jack being selfish in the ring, that he decided not to take the fall for the fixer. He knows what the outcome will be. He knows he's going to die or be crippled or something worse, and Matt's going to have to deal with that. It doesn't show Matt that he never gave up. It shows Matt that he's selfish. But if this man is broken by Maggie, burdened by this kid that he's trying his best to raise all alone, as Maggie goes out and, and becomes a nun, does that mean that Jack kind of maybe made a suicide run? That when he made that decision, yes, it was selfish, but it was intentional. That he knows he's a broken man. He knows he's never, ever going to get what he wanted. He's not going to have the family with Maggie. He's not going to have the love he had with Maggie. He's never really going to see his career come back again. So Jack just decides, it. I'm going to do what I need for this moment. I know what's going to happen, but I want to go out on my feet. Still selfish, but set up by Maggie leaving, abandoning him and his son. Let's think about this a little bit further as well. Maggie is a nun. She practices pacifism, peace, and compassion. These things would temper the anger and the strength of Jack, the sort of intimidation factor, the hot-headedness. So Matt never really had the influence that Maggie would, maybe a balancing influence. He's primarily influenced by Jack's actions, by Jack's motives, by Jack's violence, if we want to be honest about it. Maggie is a non-entity in Matt's childhood. He doesn't meet her until born again. Even then, she's denying. She's denying. She refuses to say, yes, I'm your mother, but Matt knows. So growing up, Matt thought his mother had passed. That's a a thing that a child could deal with to some extent. Not an easy thing, but easier than being abandoned. Easier than Maggie just saying, yep, deuces, I'm out. You're all on your own. And Matt, looking back, knows that Maggie went to do this compassionate thing. For selfish reasons, much like Jack made the decision to take the die for selfish reasons, his parents were selfish in various ways. But Matt, thinking about that, maybe not even admitting it to himself, but Matt thinking about that, 
that Maggie leaving led to Jack feeling worthless, to Jack feeling unaccomplished in career, in personage, in love, which eventually led to Jack doing this suicide run. That anger is kind of legitimate. Matt has a right to be angry at a mother who abandoned him and his father and led to really terrible circumstances. Matt is not the sum of two parents. He's the sum of Jack Murdoch. And this comes down to the age-old question about childhood. Is it nature? Is it nurture? And let's be honest, I'm not going to be the one to magically answer the question on a podcast about a superhero, but I've always thought that it can't be one or the other. Why does it have to be either extreme? There are certain elements in Matt's personality that do come from nature, such as being a hero, but nurture is kind of the leading force. It's the the force he's aware of, at least. Jack's nurturing nature is more present, more clear. We see that in Daredevil. He's hitting people, and Matt's becoming aware of that. Maggie's nurturing, if you want to call it that. Her influence comes by proxy by being absent, which is to say her absence led to Jack's attitude being a lot worse without him having that tempered feeling of Maggie. And, of course, led to you know these circumstances I'm describing. Matt got blinded. He got the beat out of him by bullies and made fun of and terrorized. And then he was left all alone in the world. If we trace Daredevil's path back to the very source of what it is, this lawyer turned vigilante, the very seed of this superhero is Maggie leaving. Matt sees this symbol of his faith that he shares with her. This faith that is predicated on sacrifice, about belief, about compassion. Matt sees that as something selfish because Maggie went to serve it. Maggie left him, robbed him of a mother, ruined his father, ruined his childhood to go do this. Is Matt angry? I would say yes. I think that's what's being said here. The red in the flashbacks, if you notice, they're very contained. They're in Jack's eyes. They're in small portions like the crucifix. They're compressed. It's Matt being held in check by Jack. Jack. Jack made Matt hit the books, which made Matt angry. It also led to Matt being abused by the other kids and bullied, which made Matt angry. Matt is anger in a can. He's very, very Hulk-like. He shares a lot with Bruce Banner internally. Maybe Matt found a release better than Banner, certainly not turning into a green rage monster, but is it less destructive? That I don't know. But Matt's anger is justified, in my opinion. Maggie threw him and Jack under the bus, and for reasons that contradict the religion she went to serve. And just as a side note, having researched what nuns are required to have or not have, having a child, a dependent child would immediately disqualify Maggie from becoming a nun, which means Maggie becoming a nun had to mean that she lied to get into that situation, which is contradictory to the very religion she went off to serve. Much like Matt, she's also a contradiction where Matt is a lawyer and a vigilante. Maggie is a nun and a liar and abandoned her family. And in doing so, started a domino effect that created the superhero Daredevil. Pro or con, that's what we're exploring now. But at the core of this, I feel, is anger. Matt's anger, Matt's frustration. And wondering if his legacy matches up to what Jack left behind. And just to make sure we nail this home, we see another version of a very Jack-like, exaggerated daredevil. Reminding us once again that Matt's not the sum of two parents. Matt is the sum of Jack Murdoch in basically dealing with the circumstances left behind. Now from here, Daredevil hits the roofs and we have this really, really cool transition. We have Daredevil's boots coming down for a landing. And this transitions to an image of Matt's shoes landing and they're at the accident. So we have that sepia tone once again. Matt talks about how he's always running after something versus having the good sense to run away from something. Matt cannot sit idle for various reasons. Guilt? I don't know. Likely. The idea of making a difference? Definitely. The consequences of failing? Yes, I believe so. 
But this started even as a kid, when Matt was working out in secret to hide from his dad. He still hit the books, but he'd hit the medicine ball. He would lift weights. He would be physical. Matt has internally a restless spirit. That is his nature, not his nurture. So it is a balance of the two. But Matt is just a restless soul. When we come back to something said last issue, no good deed goes unpunished as we once again see the same shot of the old man being pushed out of the way. And Kazada gives the old man this shadowy, slightly spooky look. Which may be because Matt's remembering what his last vision is. There's a haunting idea to that. The last thing you ever see. And it's somebody's face. And they're being pushed out of the way. They're surprised. They're confused. Imagine the last thing you ever see. What would you want that to be? Would you want it to be an old man that's a stranger? As you're about to experience a lot of pain. Me, I'd want to see my wife for the last time. If it's the last thing I got to see, I'd like to remember her face as the last piece. But as we leave this scene, we have Matt's shoes once again, and that leads back to Daredevil's boots leaping. No change to the restless nature from Matt as a kid to Matt now as Daredevil. And in these scenes, Daredevil once again looks more traditional in his in terms of his body, being leaner, more of an acrobat's body versus the, the giant jack monster. The only thing that really stands out is that Kazada puts a nose piece on the mask. Normally, Daredevil's mask curves down from the very top of the bridge of his nose this kind of goes from the tip of his nose back kind of like batman and it bothers me a little bit and here daredevil discovers just the hint of the santarians they've broken up a drug ring of course these are the new heroes that we're going to meet at the end but here's where i really started thinking about what's being put on the table so far so far we have daredevil's thought process this introspection who am i am i doing the right thing am i the product of a failed boxer am i doing the right thing by being a lawyer or am i doing more good as daredevil we have the whole maggie farrell plot we have the santarians now on the table. Then we have Nestor or Nero, and we also have Johnny Sockets. We have, count them, five ongoing plots, some of them stronger than others. We're two issues in, we've got five plots, a lot of spinning plates. And speaking of Johnny Sockets, that's where we go next, as we see him take his next victim, and of course, we gotta take out the eyes. This makes sense. You have a blind superhero have somebody taking out somebody's eyes. Symbolism, I get it. But here's the thing that I wonder. We're dealing with the idea of guilt, and I believe Johnny Sockets is taking his victim's eyes out to hide his sin, either that's sexual in nature or just the murderous idea. Here's why I think this. We have these themes playing. The sins of the father. Are Jack's sins becoming Matt's sin? We have Nero's dad kind of playing out. We haven't seen how that's going to play, but who knows? And we have Maggie and Sean, who won't be parents. So this is a very strong theme, which I'm assuming is going to tie into Johnny Sockets. We have this weird four-page sequence, and it's it's two scenes combined. We have this sort of narration by the news report where it shows the victim's path and then we get Nero's eyes. Each page is made up of three horizontal sections. In, in the first one we have the victim in three panels and Nero in one and that alternates. So you might have three panels of Nero's eyes, one of the victim and this basically pulls out slowly so you see Nestor or Nero watching TV yet again. He's watching TV and brooding and now he's really sweating. There is a real estate in comic book storytelling. You have X amount of pages to tell Y amount of story. Both Nero and the Johnny Socket situation, they're a B-roll at this point. I get the feeling we're supposed to suspect that Nero is Johnny Sockets at this point, and using the eyes to symbolize once again that he's watching, that his eyes are watching this. 
while the victim's eyes are being taken out. I get it, but at the same time, he's still watching TV. And this does fit in with the Marvel tradition of the newly introduced character normally being the culprit of whatever crime is going on. Kazada set it up with the segue of Nero going out and then the account of Johnny's murder, and I, I, I don't buy it. I think it's a little bit too easy. I'm hoping there's more to Nero than just being the, the killer in this story. But finally, finally, we get back to Maggie's story, the story I'm invested in, the A-roll, if you will. And the Nelson and Murdoch sign is fixed. Last issue, they said it was Murdoch and Nelson, and I, I kind of glazed over that a little, but I'm glad it's fixed. They only had 15 months to do it, so I'm glad we got that between issues one and two. And we kind of go back to the same trick here, where Matt's office is dark again. I mean, I, I assume they must save tons on electric by doing that. They just burn an old, like, oil lantern and we have this mystery of maggie's black eye people are keeping secrets left and right nero's being secretive maggie's got a black eye we don't know if it's sean that did it which seems a little obvious but i refuse to believe that that everything is what it seems to be here but later we get this idea once again a little bit too obvious a little bit too heavy-handed that sean is washing the knife at the house there's this argument between sean and maggie about maggie's cancer taking over and I see that. That's realistic. That smacks of realism because when you have a disease like that, it affects everybody. It looms as a shadow over everything. And sometimes when you're the family member, it helps to to get away for a moment and try to refocus. And that's kind of what I see Sean doing here. Maggie is accusing him of seeing another girl and Sean just needs a minute to think and try to process everything that's being thrown at him. And to kind of add yet another layer here, as Matt is trailing Sean, he gets the smell of Old Spice, much like Jack, so another little nod, but a hint of chemo. What the heck is going on with Sean? Suddenly we got this whole other stitch to an ongoing story that I'm like, oh, show me more. And if Matt's being inconspicuous, if he's trying trying to he is failing he's got the straight up stalker uniform a fedora and trench coat like he's flashing people on fifth avenue hey here's my billy club think about it matt's hanging out and he's got to explain to a police officer that he's not intentionally near a school he's stalking an adult no it's cool it's an adult i see this playing out very badly now again real estate i want to talk about the real estate being used here we went from five issues to a six issue miniseries and i think i see why we go through three pages of matt pursuing sean it's very frank miller with a lynn varley red sky it's shadowy matt's in all kinds of positions it's a nice homage but three pages at this point we have the core of the story we have a lot of spinning plates and i like that but kazada's starting to indulge and it's beautiful his art is beautiful here but very very indulgent and then suddenly this indulgence hits a brick wall as matt is blasted out of the sky and drops to the ground and for the indulgence we have here the pacing of the issue suffers it revs up and it idles and then pow the pacing is all over the place, and despite the pacing's risks, it has my attention. It still has me on board, but I'm going to need more as we go on. And as I kept reading, I, I kept thinking, I don't have a speck of memory to any of this. Did I really read this? And I can tell you honestly, I'm not sure. But let's bring this into the final verdict here. I've talked about a pacing a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about the indulgence. It's very indulgent. The pacing is very stop, stop, go. The comic is very nice to look at. It's very beautiful. The art is on, on par. It has a lot of ideas, but but is it a good read as a story? With this, Kazada does keep the plates spinning. He weaves in more elements, kind of like mixing together a nice cookie batter. 
but some plates are only spinning. They're not really producing anything. I find Matt's inner monologue, these scenes are the most insightful, the most interesting to me. That inner drive and conflict that forms Matt Murdock is very clear, and it's given me a lot of thought process and talking points. And it's building on things that are already established. We kind of established where Matt is last issue. Once again, we indulge in this, and I find it interesting because I like the psychology of Matt Murdock. It's making these episodes very easy to sit down and talk about, but not necessarily something I want to read on a month-to-month basis. I will say that the Maggie Farrell plot is fairly well-serviced. It's a slow burn, and I think that particular element is better for the pacing. That one has gotten to the right mode and the right speed. But Nero has moved nowhere beyond potentially being a suspect for Johnny Sockets and watching TV. I don't want to read comics about people watching TV. That's a little too close to my life, you know? Let's be honest, how many of you would buy a comic book that's about me watching episodes of The Rockford Files? Not many of you, but there may be a couple. Maybe we could talk about a Kickstarter option, I don't know. The Johnny Sockets plot. It it is breathing, and it's also a a fairly good slow burn. You want that mystery to play out a little bit. It's nice to play in the background. But again, it's B-roll. So that's not necessarily the problem. It's the fact that all of these don't come together. The water is not boiling, and we're at one-third of the way through this whole series, which means we should be at the end of the first act. These two issues have kept me engaged, they've kept me interested, but there needs to be some more movement in the remaining four issues to really make this thing come together. So I do think that the pacing is a little bit awkward, it's a little frustrating, but as the second half of the first act, it's okay. It's just lacking in plot overall, and for the next four issues, I need to see some real, real movement. But of course, next issue is next week, one week from today. Between now and then, feel free to visit 2TrueFreaks.com to visit the show notes or look at other podcasts on the network. While there, you can subscribe via iTunes and RSS link for your podcatcher of choice. And of course, visit Facebook.com slash Podcast. Yes, the title says Dave Does Podcasts because I changed it. They won't let me change it back. I'm also on Twitter. I am at Dave Weeder. And next week, Daredevil Father number three, where we learn more, hopefully, about the Santarians and Nero and all that stuff. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. It does not draw profit for the material discussed, nor does it generate any general revenue. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment, all rights reserved. All opinions are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. This show and the host Soul are both registered trademarks Marks of Demonsacor of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Count evil father, he loves his king. Three more go Friday when you hear his name.